Let's pray as we come to look at this part of the Bible together. Gracious God, as we now turn to the Bible, we pray for the enabling of your Holy Spirit to teach and to listen, to understand, to believe, to obey, and to live in light of the truth that is found in your word. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Some people will promise anything to gain power, and they will do anything to keep power. And we've seen that in the world that we live in. And recently, there was an election in India, and one of the candidates in this local election promised that anyone who voted for him would receive 10 liters of brandy per month for the rest of their life. (laughs) Crazy promise, but he was saying it in the hope that he would get power. That's funny. But what's not funny is the extent that some leaders will go to to keep their power. You see, many leaders, whenever they get power, especially if they get absolute power, they do evil things, wicked things, devilish things in order to keep it. Just look to North Korea. Kim Jong-un, look at how he treats the people there. He starves them. He abuses them. He uses his power to control them. And if anyone steps out of line in North Korea, they're sent to a work camp for the rest of their life. They are literally worked to death. In China just now, the supreme leader is grabbing more and more power, tightening his fist making sure that people can't rebel against him, making sure that his power is absolute and the people of China are suffering. You can see it all over the world. Where there is people in power, they do anything to keep it, including evil, horrible, devilish things. Now, this morning, we're not here for a history lesson. We're here to hear from God. But it is important that we understand a little bit of the history as we come to look at this part of the Bible. So when we read Acts chapter 12, we're going back to the year A.D. 44. A.D. 44. We're going into Judea, which is modern-day Israel. It was the land that was given to the Jews by God and that was now occupied by the Romans. The Romans were there and they were disliked and they weren't wanted by the Jewish people. But the Roman Empire, they had a very clever idea to keep all the Jews on board. They didn't want the Jewish people rebelling and starting a war, so they had a very clever idea to keep all the Jewish people in the boat, so to speak. They set a king in place in Judea. This king, he was called Herod Antipas. He was Jewish by birth, so he had the Jewish background, he had the Jewish religion on his side, but he lived in Rome. He was educated in Rome. He was a servant of the Roman Empire. He was loyal to the empire. And so they put him as the puppet king in Judea. And he only had one job. His job was to make all of the Jewish people happy. His job was to keep them in the boat. His job was to stop them rebelling. His job was to keep the peace. But there was a problem in the land. And the problem was these new Christians. They were becoming a real pain to the Jewish people. 
Because these Christians, they would go to the Jewish people and they would tell them about Jesus. And many Jewish people were turning away from keeping the laws of Moses towards trusting in Christ. People were being converted. People were transitioning out of the Jewish faith into having faith in Jesus Christ. And the Jewish people were getting really annoyed by this. Very upset. Perhaps this would lead to a civil war. Perhaps this would lead to violence. Perhaps this would lead to trouble. And so King Herod Antipas, he wanted to keep his power. And so he did something that was evil and cruel and devilish. And we can read about it in verse 1 of Acts chapter 12. Have a look with me at the passage. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. The Christians were causing the Jewish people to be annoyed. And so the king thought, I know what I'll do. I'll keep them sweet. I'll make them happy by arresting Christians and persecuting them. Now, that word persecute here, this is not the idea of, you know, calling them names. This is not the idea of limiting a little bit of their freedom. This is the idea of actively working against them, of causing them actual harm. At this stage, probably physical violence was going to come into play. Torture was going to come into play. Death was going to come into play. It's at this point in the life of the church that persecution gets really, really serious. To keep his power, Herod was going to persecute the Christians who were causing so many problems. Then in verse 2, we read something that actually would have been unthinkable. I mean, the church, they would have heard that Herod was starting to persecute them. They would have heard about Christians being locked up. They would have heard about Christians being put into prison. But what happens in verse 2 would have been absolutely unbelievable for them to fathom. Have a look with me at the text. Look what it says in verse 2. He, that's Herod, had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Are you familiar with how you get put to death with a sword? There's really only one way to be put to death with a sword, and that's to be decapitated. John, one of the original 12 disciples, sorry, James, one of the original 12 disciples, had been beheaded. He'd been executed. Now, it wasn't that there hadn't been martyrs. Stephen had been martyred before. He was stoned to death. Do you remember a few weeks ago we heard about that? But James was one of the 12 disciples. People looked at him and thought, surely he'll be protected. Surely he would be safe. Surely he would be okay. But he wasn't. He was martyred for his faith in Christ. Shocking, it was unbelievable. And it's even hard for us to get this, isn't it? 
I mean, why? Why did God allow this to happen? James was a young man, probably only in his 30s. He'd been with Jesus. He was sharing the gospel. He was this missionary at work. He was telling people about Jesus. God was using him. And yet his life was tragically ended. And there's no comment on it, and there's no reason for it given in the text. It just happened. He was taken. It was his time. Somehow in the plans of God, this was God's plan. It makes you think, doesn't it? This sudden death without warning and just makes you think. Life is short. Life can be here and gone in an instant. Here in this church on Friday, I buried Kirker Walker. Many of you know Kirker. And it was wonderful to, to, to preach at this funeral because there were just so many people that this church building was packed. And what was fascinating was, was hearing about Kirker's life because Kirker was someone who experienced so many instances of sudden death, unexplainable death, death without any reason or rhyme to it. His sister died in infancy. His mother died when he was 17. His brother died when he was 21. His wife died when he was 45. In Kirker's life, death came instantly to many people without warning. It was here and it was gone and it was hard to fathom. And that's what we read here in this passage. James is here and then he's gone and there's no rhyme or reason to it. It just happens. There's a preacher and he's dead now. And he said that all preachers must, die, must preach like dying men to dying men. And his point was that whenever you preach, you must recognize that everyone sitting in front of you could be buried and in the grave the following week after you preach to them. And so you must preach to them and preach the gospel while they can hear it. I just want to say this morning, if you're here and you haven't trusted in Christ, if you're here and you haven't believed the good news yet, if you're here and you know Christ is true and you know he died for your sins and you know he raised from the dead and you haven't put your faith in him yet, why not make today the day? Why not make today the day? James was martyred and many Christians across the world today will be martyred for their faith. Last year, over 5,000 Christians, almost 6,000 Christians were killed for their faith. And it's hard to get our heads around, but that is the world we live in. Evil men under the sway of the evil one persecute and martyr those who follow Christ. Anyway, we read about James, and then we read about Peter, and we've been following Peter's journey, haven't we, in the book of Acts so far? We've been following Peter, and so now we hear that having seen that the death of James pleased the Jews, everyone clapped, oh, that's brilliant, Herod. Brilliant. Good, you got rid of him. We'd love to see that. How perverse is that? Having applauded the death of James, Herod, to garner more favor, 
arrests Peter. Have a look with me at verse 3. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, that's putting James to death, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads or four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. Peter is put into prison and Herod has one goal here. It's after Passover to bring him out and put him on public trial like they'd done with Jesus and to have him crucified like they'd done to Jesus. The plan here was to martyr and kill Peter too, to garner favor with the people. Now, there's something a little bit funny, though, in this passage, and it's just the extent they go to to keep Peter in prison. You see, earlier on, Peter had been in prison, and he escaped. Uh, There are some people, and if you read about their biographies, men who've escaped from prison, there are some people, and they've escaped from some high-security prisons a number of times, and Peter, he was one of those escape artists. And so what do they do? Well, they make sure he's not getting out. Normally, a prisoner is just chained to one prison guard, but Peter is chained to two. And then there's two outside the doors. There's four people guarding Peter at once. Herod wants to make sure that this plan goes through, that Peter is executed and he really gets the favor of the people. But there's something we're told here. There's something happens when Peter goes into prison that we're not told happens when James goes in. And it's found in verse 5. Have a look with me at the text says there in the second half, Peter's in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The church absolutely bamboozled that James had been martyred. This unthinkable thing had happened to James. And now they recognize this could also happen to Peter. And they're powerless to get Peter out, and they can't do anything to save Peter but they are a people who believe that God can do more than they can ask or imagine. And so they go to God and they pray earnestly for Peter. Earnest prayer is made for him. I read a wonderful, beautiful quote this week. Let me read it to you. It says this, when every other gate is shut and locked, the gate to heaven is wide open. When every other gate was locked and shut, the gate to heaven was wide open, and God's people knew it. And so they prayed earnestly for Peter. They prayed earnestly for this man who's being persecuted. They pray earnestly for this missionary whose life is now at risk. And what I find amazing is the result of their praying. What I find amazing is how God answered their prayer. What I find amazing is what their praying produced because it produced three things. The first thing it did was it produced a peace in Peter's heart. I want you to imagine for a second, okay, just stick your head in Peter's shoes here, okay? You're in prison. 
You know you're going to go on public trial. You know you're going to be executed. It's going to happen the day after Passover or the day, and it's, they, here we've got to the day. It's the night before, okay? So you know that tomorrow you're going to be taken out and you're going to be put in some sort of sham trial and you're going to be executed. How are you feeling the night before? Terrified. Could you sleep? No. You'd be walking up and down the cell. You'd be crying. You'd be weeping. You'd be thinking of your family. You'd be thinking of your friends. You'd be thinking of your life. You'd be praying, panicking. What is going to happen here? <laughs> but, but look what Peter's doing. Look what he's doing, verse 6. The night before Pierod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentry stood guard at the entrance. He's sleeping. He is sound asleep. He's resting. He's not anxious. He's not afraid. He's not pacing up and down the prison cell. He's snoring his head off. That's what he's doing. Why is that? Is it because he thinks he's going to get saved and, and released? No, it isn't. It's because he has entrusted himself to a God who loves him and a God who's sovereign. Peter is sleeping soundly on the pillow of God's sovereignty and control. The prayers of God's people have given Peter a peace. He's able to have a peace when there should be no peace. But it doesn't just produce peace because then, in response to the people's prayers, God then produces a sudden change of circumstances. Have a look at verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared in a light. This big soldier, this big messenger of God coming from the presence of God wakes him up. Get up quick, he said. The orders are being barked at him. Get ready, the chains fall off, and Peter starts to walk out. He thinks it's a dream, he thinks it's a vision. The doors open, and they open, and they open, and he gets outside. There is this miraculous, incredible change of circumstances that we cannot get our heads around. In fact, we read this, and we read it with skepticism, <laughs> don't we? Did that really happen? You know, can I really believe that? That's hard, to, that's hard to believe. Of course it is. It's miraculous, a miraculous change of circumstances. Isn't that what God does sometimes? We're in circumstances and there just seem to be no way out of them. And yet God brings us out. He changes them in miraculous ways. That's what the prayers of the people produce. That's the second thing. And the third thing they produce is rescue. You see, it wasn't that Peter just got out and then the guards woke up and they gave him a chase and they brought him back. No, he was rescued. He was gone. He was away. And you see him use the word rescue in verse 11. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. 
the prayers of God's people made a difference in that situation, it seems. This morning, I just want to remind you again that, that prayer makes a difference. Well, sorry, it's not really prayer makes a difference. It's that God makes a difference when we pray. God in His sovereignty has, has somehow ordained that He's going to answer the prayers of our, our prayers of our lips. Praying makes a difference. Maybe you're here this morning and you have no peace. Maybe you relate to Peter pounding the prison steps agitated, anxious, worried, afraid. Maybe that's you this morning. God can bring peace. If you need it, will you ask us to pray for you as the church? Will you get in touch with me so we can pray for your peace? Maybe this morning you're in a terrible set of circumstances. Maybe you're in circumstances here this morning and nobody knows about them and they seem impossible, and you don't know how you're going to change them, and it frightens you, and it scares you, the circumstances you're in. Maybe you relate to Peter in that front. Well, again, will you let me know so we can pray for you, so the elders can pray for you, or the staff team can pray for you, or I can pray for you. You can, you can let me know who you want to pray, so we can walk with you as well. Or maybe this morning you need rescued. Maybe this morning you need Christ. Maybe this morning you need forgiveness. Well, I'd love to pray for you and lead you to Him. Prayer makes a difference. Anyway, Peter gets out and we see two more things. We see astonishment. <laughs> it's quite a funny story. He runs to where all his friends have been praying and he knocks on the door. Hey guys, let me in! And the, the, the servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door. Oh, it sounds like Peter. Hey, everybody. It sounds like Peter's outside. And she doesn't open the door. And he's standing there going, let me in. He's locked out. But we're told in the text that they were astonished. They were astonished by what they saw. They were astonished that God had answered their prayers. And it's so funny, isn't it? Because we're astonished too when it happens. I mean, it, I don't know what your experience is like, but here in this church, we have prayed for things and they've happened. <laughs> and we've been astonished somehow. Almost like we weren't expecting it. But we should, because God answers prayer. And then after astonishment, we see arrogance. And we see that arrogance in verse 19. Herod's furious by what's happened. He's furious that Peter's got away. And look what he does. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards. Now, that's important. He cross-examined the guards. Okay, lads, what on earth happened here? Where is he? How did he get out? How did he escape? What was your part in it? Herod, we honestly have no idea what happened. We don't know what's happened here. We, we didn't let him out. It must have been a work of his God. We, we haven't done anything here. Sure, you know what happened before. God got him out of other prisons in the past. Well, well God has done the same here. Herod, we had nothing to do with this. It was God who did it. It was God who got him out. 
And in his arrogance, Herod doesn't believe them. Herod doesn't recognize that God is a God who can do more than someone can ask or imagine. And so in his arrogance, and very tragically and very sadly, he has these men executed. Arrogance, refusal to believe that God had been at work. And the arrogance continues because later on he goes to Tyre and Sidon and he holds this great feast and he says a few words and the people, you know, they give him a big cheer and says, oh, Herod speaks with the voice of a God. And Herod says, yeah. Yeah, I do. Arrogance. Taking the place of God. Taking people's lives doing things that God hates. Rebellion and arrogance against God. That's how you describe Herod. But not for long. Because the passage tells us, doesn't it? That after he didn't give glory to God, he was struck down, eaten by worms, and died. Now that's probably a saying. You know, he didn't just fall down and worms came out of the ground and ate him. It's, it's probably a euphemism. Josephus, the historian, tells us, though, that he did fall down at the banquet and that he did die. Sources outside the Bible tell us that he had a very painful and tragic and sudden end. God brings down this tyrant. Let's finish with some application. And the first thing is to recognize how this passage does not apply. What this passage is not saying is that if you get locked up in prison, God's going to get you out. It's not saying that, so behave, obey the law, don't get locked up. But what it is doing is it's encouraging us to do something. It's encouraging us to pray for the persecuted church. That is a very solid application of this passage. It is to pray for the persecuted church. And the church, not here, we're not persecuted. Let's not say we are. Some people don't think we're great. We're not persecuted. But there are Christians persecuted all over the world. Every year, Open Doors release what is called the World Watch List. And they list the 50 countries where it is most dangerous to be a Christian. And for the first time in over 20 years, the number one country changed this year. Consistently, it's been North Korea, North Korea, North Korea, North Korea, but not in 2022. It has changed to Afghanistan. Afghanistan is now the most dangerous place it is to be a Christian. Now that the Taliban are back in power. Christians have no freedom to worship. They can't meet publicly like this. They can't identify as a Christian openly or they will be killed. They cannot own a Bible. They cannot share the gospel. They cannot have Christian weddings or burials. They are tortured and they are killed for their faith. And it's not just Afghanistan, but it's in many, many countries all over the world. 
we need to pray for these brothers and sisters, and we need to pray for these countries, and we need to pray for these people. And we need to pray believing that God can do even more than we can ask or imagine. Let's pray for peace. Let's pray for rescue. And one more thing that I'm going to suggest we pray for, and this might be a little bit controversial, but let's pray that God would bring down the tyrants of this world. He brought Herod down in this passage. Let's pray he brings tyrants down who do evil things to keep their power and to persecute God's people. As we finish, let's just remember this. With all we see in the world, with all the tragedy, with all of the pain, with all of the suffering, with all of the persecution, God is on the throne. God is at work. And we are to trust him and depend on him and pray to him. Let's do that just now. Sovereign God, we worship you and we acknowledge that you know all those who suffer today in your name. We remember this morning all of those who are imprisoned for their faith just now and ask that they would join with the Apostle Paul to see that even though they remain captive, their chains have furthered the gospel, not frustrated it. May they inspire and embolden their fellow believers today to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. O oh God of all comfort, for those who are tortured today in body and mind, would you give them grace to endure? And would you help them to see their suffering as being part of following in the footsteps of Christ? Merciful God, we also pray to you for those who you ask to pay the ultimate price. Those who are martyred because of their love for you, may they truly know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Father, for those who are widowed and orphaned, may they know the comfort that comes from your promised presence even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. May they be strengthened by your Spirit, enabling them to rejoice with the psalmist as they proclaim that the Lord will not abandon them in death. And Heavenly Father, for us, for us, your church, here in this part of the world where we have freedom to worship and freedom to identify as Christians and freedom even to preach the gospel, would you make us ever mindful of our brothers and sisters around the world who need us to stand with them as they suffer in your name? Teach us what it means to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. We pray that we would love, not love our lives so much as to shrink from death. Help us, Lord, to be bold witnesses in this place. Hear our prayer for ourselves and for the persecuted church, we pray. Amen.